We come this morning to the end of Paul's letter to the Romans. We started looking at this letter back in March, and we've seen it's a letter about the gospel of God. Paul mentioned that in the very first verse of the letter. It's about God's good news. And the good news is that God has made a way for guilty, condemned sinners to be reconciled to him. Every single one of us, by ourselves, stand condemned before God's holiness. We deserve judgment, wrath, and eternal death. But God sent his own son to take judgment, wrath, and death in our place. That happened when Jesus died on the cross. And when you and I trust in Jesus' work, God's verdict on us changes from guilty to not guilty. We are justified, not because of our effort, but because of Jesus. And along with that new verdict, we learned we have peace with God. In fact, we become family, children of God. God the Father is our Father, and God the Son is our brother. We become heirs to the glory of God. And in the meantime, we have God's Holy Spirit as our helper. And even in our times of failure, we are secure in God's love. That is God's good news. The gospel of God. It's his gospel because it's all about his work. And our responsibility, in the light of what God has done, is to respond. We have to accept this good news for ourselves. And once we have accepted it, we are called then to live it out. Paul called that offering our bodies as living sacrifices. There's no way we can earn God's mercy. But once we have experienced his mercy... Our lives are not to go on just like they did before. We're to break away from our old, sinful patterns of life. And we're to begin to live transformed lives. Paul went into detail about what that looks like. So after giving us the facts of the gospel in the early chapters, this letter has shown us the difference the gospel makes. How do you end a letter like this? Well, that's what we're going to find out this morning. If you'll turn with me to Romans chapter 16. In the Church Bible, that's page 1142. And in the large print, 1766. And I'm going to read the whole of Romans 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Cancrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me 
Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my dear friend Statues. Greet Apelles, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodion, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus and his sister, and Olympus and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, and so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my co-worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus send you their greetings. Now, to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery, hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is God's word. As Paul ends his letter, he encourages us to recognize ordinary heroes. He urges us to watch out for destroyers and deceivers. And he calls us to praise God for his powerful gospel. 
First of all, by his example here, Paul is encouraging us to recognize ordinary heroes. The first person he mentions is Phoebe. We don't know anything about her beyond what Paul tells us here. She was probably the person who carried this letter from Paul to Rome. And he calls her a deacon of the church in Cancrea. The word deacon simply means servant. And it's often translated that way in the New Testament. Some of your Bibles will say servant here in verse 1. But by this time, the churches are beginning to have officially recognized servants, just like we do in this church. Men and women given responsibility by the church to care for the practical needs of the church. And so the word deacon at this time is beginning to be used for that officially recognized role. It seems Phoebe had that role in the church at Cancrea. And apparently she was a wealthy lady. And she used her wealth for others. Paul says in verse 2, she has been a benefactor or a patron of many people, including me, he says. So Phoebe is a deacon by official title and by her actual behavior. She is using her resources to serve the church. Cancrea was just eight miles away from the city of Corinth. That's where Paul is writing this letter. And it seems he has asked Phoebe, as a respected member of the church, to take this letter to Rome for him. And he asks the Romans to give her a good Christian welcome, the kind of welcome worthy of God's people. As far as the other details of her life, Phoebe is unknown to us. She's just a faithful Christian lady, (coughs) serving God in the ways that she can. And Paul commends her. I think it's appropriate to call her an ordinary hero. Most of God's faithful servants are not larger-than-life characters. They just do and they give what they can. Most of the time they stay unnoticed and uncelebrated. But they are examples to us. Now it's right, of course, that we hear about great missionaries and great Bible teachers. But 99% of Christians will never have books written about them. They'll never have crowds flocking to hear them. And yet, God does most of his work through ordinary people who serve him faithfully and whose service is almost completely unnoticed. People like Phoebe. And like the people that Paul mentions in verses 3 to 16. The people in these verses are from the church in Rome. And if Phoebe is an obscure person in history, many of these people are even more obscure. We get two whole verses about Phoebe. We know even less about most of the others. And yet Paul highlights them. Why? 
We know why he might mention Phoebe. Of course, she was carrying the letter. She needs an introduction. But why go on then to spend 14 verses mentioning 26 people, most of whom are not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament? In Paul's other letters, there are little bits of what we find here. But none of them come anywhere close to this. Why does he do it here? I think Paul is saying these people are everyday examples of the difference the gospel makes. They have received God's mercy through Jesus. And now they're living sacrifices for God. Paul's saying to us, look up to them. Follow their example. The message is, you don't have to be a nationally known Christian celebrity to be a hero of the faith. You just have to be a faithful servant where God has placed you. In the ancient world, a person's name told you a lot about that person's background. Wealthy people tended to have certain kinds of names. And the poor and slaves had other kinds of names. So what do we learn from the names here on Paul's list? Well, commentators tell us two-thirds of the names here are slave names. Phoebe proves there were wealthy people in the church. And we have other examples that prove that for us. But the fact is, the majority of the early Christians were not wealthy people. They had little or no social standing. Many of them were either slaves or the children of slaves. But here they are mentioned as heroes of the faith. Have a look at some of the comments Paul makes about them. In verse 3, he mentions Priscilla and her husband Aquila. We do know a bit about their ministry from elsewhere in the New Testament. But we don't know how or when they risked their lives for Paul. Today, only God knows what they did. But they stand today as an example of self-sacrificial service for God. Verse 5 mentions a man called Epinetus, the first convert to Christ in Asia. Think about the courage that took to be the first Gentile to say, I will follow this Jesus you've told me about. No one in Epinetus' family was a Christian. It wasn't part of his upbringing. But when he heard the good news, he had the courage to say, I believe this Jesus is Lord, and I will have him for my Lord. Verse 6 says, A lady called Mary has worked very hard for the church in Rome. We have no other details. Verse 7 says, Andronicus and Junia have been in prison with Paul. And Paul says they are outstanding among the apostles. That could mean the apostles thought well of them. 
But it's more natural to take it as saying Andronicus and Junia themselves are outstanding apostles. Apostle means messenger or missionary. And Jesus personally appointed a small group of apostles with a capital A. Those men were to be the foundational, authoritative teachers of his church. Only the twelve disciples plus Paul are apostles in that sense. But there were plenty of other apostles with a small a. Missionaries like Andronicus and Junica and Junia. Christians who went about sharing the message of the capital A apostles. And apparently this husband and wife team landed in prison with Paul for their missionary work. Down in verse 10, a man called Apelles is mentioned, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. We don't know what the test was. But some trial or temptation came this man's way, and he came through it, approved as a faithful follower of Christ. In verse 12, we have three more women who work hard in the Lord. Tryphena, Tryphosa, and Persis. If we include Phoebe, Paul mentions ten women in this list. It seems clear that women did not serve as elders in the churches. But Paul's letters show us they worked hard in just about every other form of ministry. And Paul singles plenty of them out for commendation. Look at verse 13, where Paul mentions the mother of Rufus, who has been a mother to me too. That's an intriguing thing for Paul to say. Somewhere along the line, this unnamed lady treated Paul as part of her family, like one of her own children. That was a significant ministry to Paul. Remember, he's a single man. Who knows how much that lady's encouragement was used by God to keep Paul going? To help him in his ministry. This lady's work had significance in God's big plans. Paul's letter to the Romans has a reputation for deep theology. Maybe the deepest theology in the New Testament. But isn't it remarkable, here we also have more about the simple faithfulness of ordinary Christians than anywhere else in the New Testament. And that's as it should be. Because when deep theology takes hold of people's hearts, it makes a real difference to their lives. It produces men and women who live faithful, fruitful lives for God's kingdom. And most of those lives will go unnoticed in history. But they're significant to God. They are celebrated in heaven. So take this as encouragement to keep going in your own service for God. God will build his kingdom through your faithful service. 
But as he closes this letter, ordinary heroes are not the only kind of people Paul wants us to be aware of. Next in our passage, he says, watch out for destroyers and deceivers. Verse 17. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. Not everyone who pops up in church is out to serve Christ. Some people are out to serve themselves. And as they serve themselves, they can do a lot of damage. Paul mentions divisions and obstacles. And they cause these divisions and obstacles by going against the teaching you have learned. What does he mean? Well, we saw just a couple of moments ago, Jesus appointed some apostles with a capital A. A small group who were to be the authoritative teachers for the worldwide church. Every other teacher had the job of passing on the teaching of those foundational teachers. That's how Jesus set it up. And that means, for example, I cannot speak to you with the authority that Paul had. Jesus has not given me that kind of authority. The church's authoritative teachers are all dead. But they did their job before they died. They left us their teaching here in the New Testament. My job, and the job of any teacher today, is to bring their teaching to you, to represent it to you. Our job is not to try and improve on the apostles' teaching or add to it. But here Paul says, there will be those who bring teaching that does try to improve on or add to the apostles' teaching. You can count on it happening. So you need to watch out for it. Those of you who like to listen to teaching on the internet, that's good. It's a good thing to be fed in that way. But as you listen, be aware Just because someone has a Bible beside them, that doesn't necessarily mean their teaching is in line with the Bible. They might even carry the Bible around when they're talking. We can't take it for granted that what they're teaching is what the Bible teaches. We have to open our own Bibles and dig into our Bibles. And then we have to measure what they say against what we find in the Bible. All of them, if they claim to be teachers, are going to refer to the Bible. But are they contradicting the Bible? Are they twisting what the Bible says? That's even more dangerous than outright contradiction because it can sound so persuasive. 
Paul says, not only watch out for people who do that, he says, keep away from them. Or turn away from them. Earlier in this letter, Paul called us to take genuine brothers and sisters into our hearts. And we spend a couple of weeks trying to take that teaching on board. But that does not apply to those who try to lead us away from what the Bible teaches. There are non-negotiables in the Christian faith. And in those central matters, the Bible is clear and plain. Those who bring teaching contrary to the Bible are not to be welcomed. And if we think maybe that's harsh, notice what we're told in verse 18. Such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Their own appetite is literally their own belly. It's a way of saying those kind of people are all about themselves. If they were serving our Lord Christ, they would be content to stick to the word of Christ, set down for us by his apostles. But these people are trying to gain something for themselves by what they do. And it may be they're after a reputation in the church. Or maybe they're trying to gain respectability with the world outside the church. Either way, Paul tells us their motivation is selfish. And their method is to deceive by smooth talk and flattery. Another translation calls it pious sweet talk. You've probably heard some of that. It sounds good. It's attractive. And maybe it soothes us when we hear it. But it's destructive because it's not true. If we follow it, we're following lies. Lies told to us by people who are out for themselves. Paul has written this letter at least in part to make the church false teaching proof. This letter, if we learn it and digest it, will prevent us being deceived by false teachers. Look how Paul puts it in verse 19. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. In other words, he wants them to be innocent in evil. He's not saying he wants them to be naive about what is evil. The point is he doesn't want them to be guilty of evil. And they would be guilty if they went along with false teachers. Another translation says, I want to see you experts in good and not even beginners in evil. That's what this letter is here to help us with. It's what God's word in its entirety is here for. For teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now if we hear this and feel a bit daunted by what Paul's saying about 
destroyers and deceivers. For feeling that way, then there is encouragement for us in verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Notice the contrast. Our God is the God of peace. And this God of peace is going to crush Satan. There can never be true peace until evil is destroyed. So the God of peace does not try to live and let live when it comes to evil. Because he is good, he will crush evil. And we might wonder, well, what's God's timetable for doing that? When's it going to happen? Well, Colossians says he's already triumphed over evil at the cross. Jesus' death and resurrection won a decisive victory. The cross broke the back of sin and Satan. Satan has lost the war, but he still fights on. He's beaten, but he hasn't yet conceded defeat. And in his desperation, he's still dangerous. But here Paul reminds us, a day is coming when Satan will no longer fight on. He will be crushed. That will happen when Christ returns. And when he returns, it will not be to die on a cross. It will be to claim his people and destroy his enemies. That's not only Satan, it's also all those who side with Satan. How do people do that? They do it by turning away from God's offer of forgiveness and mercy. Satan is a deceiver and a destroyer. He has sweet-talking servants who are out to deceive and destroy. But when we are in Christ, we have nothing to fear from Satan and his servants. Jesus Christ has bought us with his blood. He's given us his written word to make us wise. And he will keep us firm to the end. That's the truth Paul closes with in this letter. After he brings some greetings from those who are with him in Corinth, including Tertius, who Paul dictated the letter to, after those final greetings in verses 21 to 23, Paul ends the letter right where he started, with God and his gospel. Whatever else this letter has touched on, this letter is about leading us to praise God for his powerful gospel. Look at verse 25. Now, to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery, hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. Paul says God is able to establish us or strengthen us in accordance with my gospel. 
It's not just that the gospel says God can strengthen us. The point is, he strengthens us through the gospel. We become strong as we take the gospel to heart and as we build our lives on it. The good news about Jesus is the only rock-solid platform for our lives. It tells us God has done what we could never do for ourselves. On the cross, he paid for our sin. Through faith in Christ, we can live free from the condemnation and the power of sin. And we have a secure, glorious future ahead of us. That's the only truth that can strengthen us in present sufferings and present temptations. Paul calls it my gospel, meaning the gospel God has entrusted to me. Paul announced that in the very first verse of this letter. It's the gospel of God. And Paul has been set apart as a messenger who delivers that gospel. For centuries, it was a mystery. How could God fulfill his promises to save a people for himself and also fulfill his promises to demonstrate his holiness in punishing evil? The mystery was, how can he punish evil properly and still leave any of us standing? We're all guilty sinners. But now the mystery has been revealed. Jesus Christ has been punished in our place. Because of Jesus, we can be forgiven and accepted and loved by the eternal God. That's the gospel of God. And now God is calling all the nations to come and put their faith in what he's done. He's calling them to come and live lives of obedience in his power. So if you have never taken hold of this good news for yourself, do it today. You don't have to get your life in order first. God will give you the power for that. But first you have to come and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I know I deserve wrath from you, but I accept the good news of your mercy. I believe Jesus died. I believe you raised him. And I believe that death and resurrection were in my place so I could live. I receive your mercy through Jesus, my Savior. And I want to live in obedience to Jesus, my Lord. The truth of Romans is truth for all times. It's truth for all places and all kinds of people. It is still the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And when you and I see that, It leads us to do what Paul does. He ends his letter with words of praise. To the only wise God, be glory forever 
through Jesus Christ. The gospel is good news about God's work. And he deserves the praise and the glory for it. So we're going to add our own praise as we sing together, Great is the gospel of our glorious God.